Amen. Well, this is uh, this is the new year. The end of one year, the beginning of another one. It's pretty typical for us to go back, to look back at the basics. When people talk about New Year's resolutions, they talk about how they're going to start eating right, the things they forgot to do around summertime. They're going to start doing them again. They're going to start working better. They're going to renew zeal at their work. They're going to do the things with their family that they meant to do all year long. It's a time for retrospectives, too, to look back at the significance of what happens. And most of these major, most of our major TV networks do these things, you know, with the events of the last year. Talk about political, uh, the, the things that, that shaped the year politically. Some of them do pop culture, if you watch the E! Network or something like that, or or maybe maybe uh, sports. I tend to like the, the sports retrospectives. And, of course, I really like them this year because is there any any other story that really holds a candle to the, the triumph of the Auburn Tigers of the undefeated season? Heisman Trophy to Cam Newton. This climate, where we're kind of looking back, looking forward, I think this climate is particularly useful for us as we get back into our study of the Gospel of Mark because it gives us an opportunity to, to take a bird's eye view on where we've come. It's also a good time in the Gospel of Mark where we have come in our study is, is the halfway point of the book. We came to this climactic moment where all the little pieces of evidence that had been building in the story led to Peter's dramatic confession. Who is Jesus? Some say John the Baptist. Some say another one of the prophets. Maybe Elijah. Peter says, no, he's the Christ. And everything that was written up to that point was to lead to that moment. Now we have, we're turning a new page. The second half of the book is all about Jesus' death and what it means to be a follower of a Jesus, of a, of a Savior, a Messiah who dies. So at that halfway point, at that dividing line, it makes sense, I think, for us to, to step back, get a bird's eye view of everything that we've said so far. Mark, as, as those of you who have been with us before we'll remember it's the oldest account that we have of Jesus life and teachings it's also the shortest he doesn't waste any words he gets right at the point what he's trying to do is answer three main questions who is Jesus what did Jesus come here to do and what does that require of us who is Jesus what did Jesus come here to do what does that require of us that's what mark is after so far, most of what we've seen gets at the first question, trying to answer who Jesus is. But we've already seen enough to get a good sense of Mark's message on all three of those. And I want to summarize it for us this morning with three main points. Three main points. What we've seen in Mark so far is that, first of all, Jesus is the divine Son of God. Jesus is the divine Son of God. Secondly... We've seen that Jesus came here to fix what's broken. Jesus came here to fix what's broken. And finally, what does Jesus demand from us? Jesus demands absolute submission. Jesus demands absolute submission. That's where we're headed. That's a summary of what we've seen so far in Mark chapters 1 through 8. This is the part where I normally ask you to stand up, but I don't really want to read all of chapters 1 through 8, so I'm going to let you sit there and warn you ahead of time that we're going to be flying around through Mark chapters 1 through 8. Uh, it, however, there are going to be times where I'm reading directly from it, so if you, if you didn't uh, bring a Bible with you, we've got some Bibles for you to use here at the, uh, at the end of each aisle at the center. So you just flag somebody down, they'd be happy to pass one over to you. Mark chapters 1 through 8. First of all, Jesus is the divine Son of God. Mark gets rid of all suspense about Jesus, who Jesus is right at the beginning. He states in the, in, the, in the very first verse of his book, 
that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He gives him the title right there out of the gate. And then just a little bit later in the baptism of Jesus, he has the heavens opening up and God speaking to Jesus from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. If there's any doubt about who Jesus is, before you started reading Mark, he erases it right out of the gate. That's what you might call telling. The rest of Mark chapters 1 through 8 is what you might call showing. I had to learn the difference between those two things the hard way in graduate school. I got called more than once on papers where I was told I was telling, I was stating my arguments pretty clearly, but I wasn't doing anything to support them. I needed to not just tell in a clear way, I needed to to show. That's what Mark's doing in the rest of the book. He's told us he's the Son of God, and here's what he's got to prove to us he's the Son of God. Mark demonstrates his identity as Son of God in, in, the, in the categories, more often than not, of authority and power. It's really closely related. Authority is the right to command and have people obey you. The authority to, to say the way things are or the way they should be. Power is the ability to make those things happen. You don't really have authority if you just go around commanding people, but there's no reason for them to do what you say. For authority to have any teeth to it, it's got to be backed up by power. So for Jesus to be shown as the Son of God, Mark does that through showing he's got authority to speak and be obeyed, and he's got the power to do the things he says he's going to do. That's what, he's, that's what he proves or shows to us through story after story in these chapters. I, I just want to point you to some key examples. Beginning in chapter 1, a lot of these come right out of the gate in chapter 1. You've got the call of the disciples. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Jesus walks up to these lifelong fishermen who are probably fishermen following after generation of generation of generation in their families full of fishermen. All they'd known was fishing. Jesus walks up to them. He says, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. They drop everything and they go with him. The point is not how radical they were as disciples. The point is Jesus spoke with an authority that is unmatched. When they heard him speak, they, they acted on it. Then immediately after this, you see Mark shows us his authority in his, in his teaching. He enters the synagogue, this place established in the middle of the Jewish community that was where they went to learn about God's law and what was expected of them from that law. Jesus comes in and Mark doesn't tell us what he's teaching. He just says that he does teach and that when he's teaching, he leaves them astounded. Mark says that he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He taught them as one who had authority. That's Mark's point more than anything specific that he said. He taught in a way that no one else did. Then we get the exorcism. He's still in this synagogue. Somebody comes up to him who's possessed by this evil spirit and asks him. uh, The spirit comes up and addresses Jesus, basically begging that Jesus won't do away with him. And Jesus simply speaks a word. Be silent and come out of him. And immediately the spirit leaves him. The point of that is not just that Jesus interacts with evil spirits in a way that no one else does. The point is given to us in the, the comments of the people after they saw this. The audience tells us what we're supposed to think. They say, verse 27, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Another key example is in chapter 2. Forgiveness, the issue of forgiveness. Jesus is confronted by these guys who bring a paralytic to him to be healed. 
They cut through the roof of the house where Jesus is staying because they so badly want to get their friend healed. And as soon as he's lowered down, Jesus doesn't immediately heal him. What he does is he speaks to him and says, I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. The immediate reaction to that is one, of a, is, is one based on the issue of authority. Those who are watching, particularly the, uh, the Pharisees, are particularly upset about it. They, un- they understand that this claim to forgive sins is a claim to a prerogative that belongs only to God. Their question is, who can, who can forgive sins but God alone? The key is that Jesus does have this authority to forgive. Jesus is, in fact, God alone as his divine son. And he heals the man right after that, using his power to back up his authority to show that he's got the authority to forgive. And people, verse 12, Mark gives us again comments from the audience that tell us what we're supposed to think about this. We never saw anything like this. That's what the people say. The point of these stories, one after the other, is to show that Jesus has got something that no one else has had. Not the most respected members of Jewish society, the scribes, not any other holy man, and no one else has been able to cast out these demons. Jesus has got something unique. Chapters 2 and 3 give us the Sabbath, where Jesus takes this most sacrosanct of Jewish institutions, the one thing that really identifies them as a unique, distinctive people over against the other nations of the world, and Jesus plays with the rules. For centuries, holy men in Jewish society had established what it meant to, to keep the Sabbath holy. They had all these regulations in place that they said, Ident- these, things, these things are what it is to keep the Sabbath holy. Jesus changes all of those. He does his own thing on the Sabbath. And they, they come to him questioning, who are you to do away with these traditions of the elders? And Jesus' response to them is, in verse 28 of chapter 2, the Son of Man is Lord. In other words, the Son of Man has authority even over the Sabbath. This pattern, I think, comes to a crescendo at the end of chapter 4 and through chapter 5. That's where Mark gives us a string of stories that are meant to, to show, in case you had missed the point so far in the stories that you'd seen, that Jesus has a power and an authority that is unmatched by anyone and that identifies him not as just any old holy man, but as the Son of God. One after another in that string, starting at the end of chapter 4, we get Jesus interacting with forces that no one else had ever been able to control, forces that dwarfed human ability. And we see him triumphing over those forces with simply a word or a touch. The first is in the storm that the disciples find themselves in, in the middle of, of the Sea of Galilee. Their, their little boat is getting tossed around like crazy by these waves. The wind is whipping in a way that, that made them feel how powerless they were. You can almost see them scrambling around on the surface of their boat, trying anything to keep it afloat. And Jesus is over here sleeping in the corner. They wake him up and he stands up and he speaks to the waves. Be still. Everything falls quiet instantly. Next they come, they sail to, the, to where they're going. They, they land on the shores of the other side of the sea and they're confronted not just by a demon-possessed man. Jesus had dealt with them before. But by one, we're told, is possessed by a legion, by up to as many as thousands of evil spirits. Somehow, mysteriously, this guy is possessed. Mark tells us that the townspeople had done everything they knew to do to try to keep this guy contained. They had even put chains on him, and the chains hadn't been able to hold him. This is the beginning of chapter 5. Their best efforts had been an attempt to control the 
the, the effects of the problem this man had. And they couldn't even do that. Jesus, with a word, eliminates the problem itself. He addresses not just the effects or the symptoms. He removes the problem. And with a word, he casts out all those that had inhabited this man. Then Jesus goes on and he's moving to try to, to, try to heal this, this little girl that's on the brink of death. And in, on his way, he's touched by a woman who we're told had some sort of disease that had been incurable, that she'd spent all of her money hiring the best doctors she could find. And for years she had had this thing and no one had able, been able to do anything about it. And she merely touches him, touches his garment, and her disease is gone. Then Jesus reaches his destination. A little girl has died by this point. Jesus just walks up to her. He, he walks up to her with the confidence and the resolve of someone who knows that this is no obstacle for him. He's laughed at by those who have been mourning over their child when he tells them that, he's, that the child is just sleeping. And then with a power that's only matched by the strength of his compassion, he touches the little girl and tells her just to rise. And she does. Jesus conquers the forces of nature. He conquers the forces of amassed evil spirits. He conquers a disease that the best doctors couldn't conquer for years. And he, then, then he conquers the power of death itself with this little girl. We could go on with more examples of this authority and this power. We could talk about the feeding of the 5,000 or Jesus walking on water, all these other examples Mark has given us. The effect of them, though, is jabs. Like a good boxer, he's jabbing at us preparing us for that knockout blow. The knockout blow comes in chapter 8 when, when Peter is confronted by Jesus and the disciples, who do you say that I am? He's asked him who other people say that he is. We've got all this stuff that he's been doing. And we have to understand what it, why it matters. We have to be able to interpret the significance of the things that, that we've seen. And one thing we could try to explain it away is maybe he's, he's Elijah back from the dead. We, we know the prophets have promised he's coming. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's just another prophet, some other holy man. Maybe he's John the Baptist back from the dead. There's all these theories. Peter makes the good confession. Who is Jesus? All of these jabs have been getting us ready for the knockout punch that Peter delivers. Jesus is not just any other holy man. Jesus is the Christ. That comes in chapter 8. That's the last passage we looked at together. Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the one who was promised long ago by the prophets, come deliver his people from their sins. Now, here's the question that all of this builds to. If Jesus is not just some human religious leader, if he's actually the son of God, and if he's actually the Christ, the promised one come to deliver his people, why would he come? Why not? What, what, what made it necessary for the son of God to come? as opposed to just some other prophet like Elijah. Why would God himself become man? That's the question. What did Jesus come here for? That leads us to the second piece of our overview of chapters 1 to 8. We've seen Jesus is the divine Son of God. Second major piece to Mark's puzzle so far is that Jesus came here to fix what's broken. So what is it? The Son of God came here because the world that he'd made suffered from a problem that no one else could solve. Only God himself, in other words, could redeem those that he loved. Now, this is going to be more of a focus in the next half of the book. 
like I mentioned before, the next half of the book is almost all about Jesus' death and what it means to follow a Christ who is going to die. But we've seen enough already to understand how Mark views what Jesus came to do and how he had to do it. That's what I want to focus on here in this second point. What did he come to do and how did he mean to do it? What did he come to do? How was he going to do it? What he came to do, his fix for what's broken is something he describes in the language of the kingdom. Almost all the teaching that Mark gives us in chapters 1 through 8, which isn't much, by the way, compared to like John, where there's tons of teaching, all these long passages of Jesus interacting with people and explaining things. Mark gives us barely any kind of teaching, but where he does, it's almost, so far it's been focused on this notion of the kingdom. We get it in the very beginning in chapter 1. Mark gives us a summary of what Jesus has been teaching. This, is, this comes in, in chapter 1, verse uh, 15. Says, Mark tells us that John was arrested, then Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And in verse 15, he gives us, here's a summary of what Jesus was proclaiming wherever he went. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Whatever that means, that's how Jesus viewed the solution to the problem that afflicts all of humankind. It's the kingdom. Then, it's the, then the same subject comes up again in chapter 4. The one long teaching passage we've seen so far in Mark is a bunch of parables where Jesus was telling these stories to give analogies for what the kingdom is like. We saw things like the, the fact that not everyone would, would receive it well, that it, that it starts small and then grows almost like a mustard seed which then becomes the largest plant in the garden. We've seen that like a farmer who sows seed and then just waits for the thing to grow, so the kingdom of God is sown by those of us who preach the gospel, but then God does the work. The kingdom is like these things. But to really understand the importance of the kingdom and how it's a fix for what's broken, we have to go outside of Mark and understand the context of all that happened before Jesus came. Because when Jesus spoke this message, he spoke it to people who would have known what he was talking about. We have to go back, in other words, to the story that the Bible has been telling from the very beginning. I think we can start, in fact, in, at the beginning of Genesis. That in the Garden of Eden, we have a picture of what the relationship between God and his people is supposed to look like. We have a picture of what it is that Jesus is trying to restore. In the Garden, we have God, absolute, self-sufficient, creator and sustainer of all that is, providing for creatures that he's made in love and in his image. Those creatures are given by God everything that they need for security, for sustenance and provision, for happiness and joy. And all that they give back in return is a trust that is shown by them receiving what they need from God's hand and not trying to do it themselves and by them obeying the the things that God has told them to do. Obedience is itself a trust that the guy who told you to do the thing is worth obeying. The perfect relationship, the way it's supposed to work between God and his people is is captured there. A God who provides, the sustainer, the creator, the provider, and people who obey him. This becomes the mantra that God speaks to Israel over and over again. What it is he's trying to get back to after the fall. He He says regularly, they will be my people. I will be their God. That's the standard. After the fall, 
Adam and Eve have left the garden. We get to the Abraham story. These same kinds of ideas are what God promises, the substance of what God promises to Abraham. He tells him, I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to give you land. That's that's the basics of a kingdom, right? A people, a kingdom of subjects, and a place to live, a, a realm of security and provision. And in that kingdom, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the point of the promises to Abraham. We see it again in Israel's history. After God has redeemed them from, from, from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus, he promises he's going to take them to the land that he would promised of Abraham. That now, instead of a subject people, he was going to make them a sovereign nation. He would rule over them in a land where he, that was flowing with milk and honey with everything they could possibly need. And all that he asks is that they obey him and therefore show that they trust him as their God and king. He gives them everything they need as they're on their way. Think about the guidance that they need, that he gives them through a fire, a pillar of fire that leads them and a cloud. Think about the food that they need. He provides it through giving them quail from the sky and manna. Remember, he doesn't give it to them enough so that they can store it up. He wants them trusting him as their God. He only gives them enough for each day. Remember that part of the story. The manna comes for that day for no more. If you tried to save it, it goes bad. You have to trust that God is going to be the one to provide. That's the goal of God in his redeeming his people. The same thing could be traced from the period of the kings, from the time under David, from uh, the time that the prophets were, were proclaiming their messages, the things that the prophets were calling for as they called the people out for their sins was an environment in which God is recognized as God, as the sole true and rightful king and in which God therefore provides for his people. That's the goal. But you could say that this kingdom relationship where God rules over his people and supplies all they need and where they respond in trust and obedience, this is an unrealized goal throughout the whole Old Testament. It's like every phase of their life, of Israel's life as a people, God is giving them another chance after they have turned to other sources for security, after they've tried to to, to get what they need out of an idol or out of one of the gods of the surrounding nations, rather than trusting the one true God as their God, it remains unrealized because of the sinfulness of people, which boils down to a selfishness, a desire to be king in place of God. You could argue, I think, that all the brokenness of the world ultimately stems from the brokenness of this fundamental relationship between God and his people, where he is trusted as the sole source of provision and security and where he therefore provides all the things that we need. Adam and Eve's downfall, you remember, was them wanting to be like God. They wanted to have what God had rather than trust him to be that for them. It was Israel's downfall. Remember the period of the judges? The, judges, the book of Judges ends with that, that powerful statement that there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. The brokenness of the world is traced back to each person wanting to be king. Every sin that any one of us commits is ultimately putting our interests ahead of some other interests the sins we commit against each other, if we, if we lie to each other, it's, it's rooted in the sense that our interest in having something protected, the truth unknown, is 
is more powerful, it's greater than the interests of the other person in knowing the truth. When we struggle with lust, it's our putting our interests to gratify desires of the flesh over the interests of our spouse or over, over God and His commands to, to keep ourselves pure. When we struggle with anger, it's the sense that our interest in being and having things exactly like we want them is stronger than the other's interest in not being attacked by us, either verbally or physically or whatever. All brokenness can stem back to our putting our own interests in the place of king. What's broken is that God doesn't reign as king over a kingdom of people who trust and obey him. That's what's broken. Jesus came to fix it. That's why he uses the language of kingdom. Jesus came to set this thing right. To establish this beautiful and peaceful kingdom once and for all because the law couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. Only the Son of God could do it. Now remember, what the parables have said is not going to happen all at once. Jesus is not going to come in. He doesn't come in here, rather, riding on a white horse, acknowledged by all people who, who live in the world as the king who now fall down and worship him. It starts small, just like a mustard seed. But like the mustard seed, the, the small beginning doesn't reflect the all-encompassing bigness, the sweeping nature of what's coming. We don't see it yet, but we get a taste of what it's going to look like in Jesus' use of his kingly authority. Jesus comes using the power and authority we've just talked about, not as a dictatorship, not as a Hitler-style Gestapo where he's, where he's hurting, hoarding people into camps and, and just killing them all. What we get is not some sort of masochism, some sort of abusive power, but a power to restore a power that's governed by compassion and kindness towards those who have the least. It's a power that leads Jesus to the lepers, those who are outcasts from society and, and have, from whom he stands to gain nothing. It's a power that, that takes him to those people to restore the health that the brokenness of the world has taken away from them. This is what his kingdom will look like. Yes, he demands allegiance from us. Yes, he offers commands and even warnings against those who disobey. But he commands what's best for us and promises the power to deliver for those who rest in him. That's what the kingdom will look like. That's what Jesus came to fix. Now, if that's what he came to fix, if that's what he came to do, how was he going to do it? How would he fix what's broken? That's something that was introduced to us at the last passage we looked at together before Christmas. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus begins to teach his disciples that rather than coming in as, an, as a universally acknowledged king, he was going to come in as one who has to suffer and ultimately be killed. The way that Jesus is able to fix what's broken, to reestablish a kingdom in which God is recognized as God and his people trust him for all the things that they need, the only way that that can happen is if Jesus first dies. Because ultimately, the affront to God's standing as God is one that can't go unpunished if God is to be a God of holiness and justice. If justice in our world is to have any meaning, it has to first depend on a justice that God upholds and that is unflinching. So if God is going to fix this world that's been broken, if He is going to restore rather than just destroy everything that has been affected by sin, then something has to satisfy the demands of his justice. 
If Jesus, in other words, is to establish the kingdom that he came preaching, he was going to have to do it with his blood. That's what the end of chapter 8 promises he will do. And that's what the second half of the book explains to us in more depth. That's where we're headed in the future weeks. Jesus came to die, Mark chapter 10 tells us, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how he would fix the brokenness of the world. So, what have we seen so far? We've seen in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He shows himself to be this by doing things that no one else could ever do, not even the greatest prophets or kings in all of Israel's history. He is something distinctive. So why did this distinctive figure have to become human to enter our world, to live amongst us and to do these amazing things? Why? He came to fix what was broken. What was broken was something that could only be fixed by God himself coming to reestablish the world that he, as he intended it and to do that through his own blood. So what does Jesus demand? If this is who he is, and this is what he's come to do, what does he demand of us? That's the bottom line question we need to answer. And so far in Mark chapter 1 through 8, we've seen that Jesus demands absolute submission. He demands absolute submission. It means that our only wise and proper choice is to submit to him as Savior, but not just as Savior. We must submit to him as Lord. His call to our allegiance is all or nothing. Now, here's, here's what I want to explain as we close. Two things. First, why this call to absolute submission is good news for you, not bad news. Why this call to absolute submission is good news. And then, what it looks like in practice for you to be fully submitted to Jesus. So Jesus demands absolute submission. What I want to do with the remaining time is explain why that's good news and what that looks like. First, why it's good news. We need to be careful here not to get the wrong idea. We, in our culture in particular, we love our freedom. We love it so much that we get a little funny when we hear words like submission. They have a, almost fingernails on a chalkboard kind of effect on us. When we think of submission, we think of Hitler. We think of slavery. We think of someone not letting us be who we can be. That's what we think of. In fact, though, by submission... We don't mean bondage. By submission, we mean living as we were intended to live. The submission Jesus calls for can be liberating because it's what we were designed for. Now, let me give you some examples. You could say that if I had the desire to fly, I could recognize the fact that I don't have wings, I don't have any of the aerodynamic properties that would be conducive to that ability. But... I could say, I'm not going to submit to that. I define who I am, and, and I'm going to fly. I could go to the top of this building and run and jump, and we all know what would happen. I mean, you could say, is it bondage that I'm not able to fly, that I submit to the, to the faculties that I have, to, to the way that I was designed? Well, I guess you could say that, but I think you'd be crazy. It's liberating, rather, for me to realize that I'm pretty good at walking around, that I can get where I want to by walking in a way that a snake can't. Right? So I'm going, it's liberating for me to see how I'm designed and to live that way. I don't have to slither. I can't fly, but I don't have to slither. So I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm designed to, and that's a liberating thing, submitting to that reality. It's a reality whether I recognize it or not, whether I act in accordance with it or not. It's still true. 
The question is, if I submit to what's real and true, it's liberating. Another example, I was, as a kid, I really, really wanted to play professional baseball. Loved it, loved professional baseball players, loved to watch it. Been a crazy Braves fan since I can remember, as long as I've had consciousness. But probably by the time I was 12 or 13, I realized I was not good. I just wasn't good, even at 12 or 13. Now, you could say that me realizing this was a form of bondage, that I was in bondage to my own complete lack of athletic ability. But you could also say that just submitting to the fact that I don't have those faculties, that's not who I'm designed to be, liberated me because it allowed me to turn to things that I, I could do well, things that other interests that I had that, that I was able to actually follow through on. And so it made me a voracious reader. And, you know, the rest is history. I don't play for the Braves, but I do read a lot and I enjoy it. I enjoy photography, I've just realized in the last couple of years. I'm also not really good at it, and I'm never going to be the kind of person who has the kind of equipment that could make me good if I was to get some skills that I would be able to act on with that equipment. I realize I'm just not going to be that guy. But that's actually kind of liberating because it's helped me narrow down to just maybe one lens that I really like and I want to learn to use it well. Now, that's, that's a liberating thing for me, to submit to the realities of who I am. I, I think that hopefully those examples are enough. The point is we were made for submission to God. We were made to be his people. And for him to be our God, all the problems in the world trace back to our refusal to accept this reality. We can live as if it's not true, but it will always stay true. And if we live as if it's not true, there are serious problems that result. Any attempt to usurp God's right to rule is going to fail, ultimately. It is a liberating thing for us to realize that this, tr- that this is true and to embrace submission to him in the person of Jesus Christ and to live our lives on that basis. The way out of the problems of failed usurpation of God's rule is to accept who we're supposed to be and to do that with joy. Now, that's why it's good news for you that Jesus calls you to submission. But what would it look like in practice? Mark chapters 1 through 8 gives us some guidance here too. From the very beginning, actually in chapter 1, right out of the gate, in Jesus' summary of his message, Jesus calls, his, calls people who hear him to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is the first key to living as those who are submissive to, to Jesus. Repentance is not about perfection. It is about turning away from sin, but not perfectly. No one in this life, on this side of heaven, will ever be able to do that. It's about turning away from all allegiances that compete with Jesus and his standing over our lives. Repentance is about allegiance. It's about who you choose to follow. Repentance, to use a, a, a political analogy, would be like changing your citizenship from the U.S. to France. It would be turning from one identity, one allegiance, to another one. It would be like changing from become, being a Titans fan to being a, I don't know, Raiders fan. I don't know why you want to do that, but that's what it would be. Allegiance is the key. When Jesus calls us to repent, what he's calling us for, calling for in us, is to turn away from anything that competes with him as the sovereign over our lives. Now, how do you know what that is for you? What do you value most? You can answer that question. You get the answer to the allegiance that you need to turn from. What is it that governs what you do? 
What is it that guides you as you make your choices? What is that value that determines what your choices are? And maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's you, you want what's best for them and you're, you will stop at nothing to achieve that. Your kids can become a competing allegiance for Jesus. Maybe it's your career. That's a really common one. That you, you know where you want to get in your career and you're willing to do anything to get there. It govern, Getting ahead in your job, in other words, governs the things that you, that you do. It governs who you choose to have relationships with and how you choose to treat them. There's your, there's your king. Could be money, could be sex, could be anything. What is it that governs what you do? What is it you value most? That's what you serve. And if it's not Jesus, you've got to let it go. That's his call to you. You've got to let that go. Living in absolute submission to Jesus then calls us to repentance. But it also calls us to rest. I think that's the gist of what Jesus, of that second peace to what Jesus calls in, in, in chapter 1, verse 15. He says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What do you have to do then? You repent, you believe the gospel. Believing the gospel is about learning to rest in Jesus and what he promises you, as opposed to trying to scrambling around trying to make ends meet yourself. Rest is the essence of faith. It's recognizing you can't do what you need to do on your own, but that Jesus can. So you let him do it. As God's people, honoring him as our king means that we trust him to provide what a sovereign should provide. We trust him rather than scrambling around trying to make do ourselves. Now, this is easier said than done. We've seen plenty of examples in Mark chapters 1 through 8 to show us how hard it is, even for those who had a front row seat to all the amazing things that Jesus was doing. Think about the disciples right after they had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people in chapter 7, or excuse me, 4,000 people in chapter 7. They go on this boat ride and they're wondering about where, they, they've got bread and they're worried about how they're going to eat. They're worried, they've seen him feed 4,000 people and they're worried about where the 13 of them are going to get their next meal. They weren't resting yet in the power and love that Jesus had already shown he possessed. The Pharisees are another classic example from chapters 1 through 8. They loved their own traditions, the traditions of the elders about what it looked like to obey the law well. They were legalists and loved themselves for it because they had these prescriptions that were clear and that they could obey and that therefore that would set them aside as valuable and worthy and perhaps even as more valuable and more worthy than anyone else who, who didn't obey their laws. That's what they trusted in. They didn't rest in, the, in, in something someone else could provide them. They relied on themselves and what they could provide for themselves through their obedience. Self-reliance is our default position, but it's the enemy of faith. Unbelief in Mark, in chapters 1 through 8, unbelief, failure to accept Jesus' divine identity, it never comes from not having enough evidence of who he is. Unbelief is always where you'd least expect it in Mark. It's in his family who'd seen him. It's among the, 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 his disciples. It's among the Pharisees who'd seen the amazing miracles he did, who didn't even pretend to deny he had power, but chose not to believe it was divine. Unbelief in Mark is never about evidence. Unbelief in Mark is about an unwillingness to let go of self-reliance. The call to absolute submission to Jesus is a call to rest in him, to let him be your God, to let his death be the all-sufficient sacrifice that makes you acceptable to God, and to live in peace as his people. 
Absolute submission means repentance, it means rest, and finally, it means self-denial. That's what was introduced in the last passage that we looked at together before Christmas, the end of chapter 8. Jesus tells his disciples that, that he's not going to be acknowledged as king right now in the way that they thought he was, with indisputed power that everyone flocks to worship. In fact, he was going to be put to death. Then he tells his disciples that because he was going to be put to death, if you want to follow him, it's going to mean you take up your cross. It's going to mean denying yourself daily. That's what it looks like to follow a suffering Savior. We're going to get into a lot more of this detail in the coming weeks. But for now, living as a subject of Jesus' kingdom in this time and place always means that we're going to be living alongside of people who don't believe in him, who don't recognize him as their king. Remember the parables. We sow, God gives growth. That growth is going to come slowly. It is not going to happen overnight. And it's not going to happen because we are able to bring it in, bring in his kingdom through our military might or political activism. The kingdom is coming, but God's bringing it and not, not through our diligence. History is full of failed attempts of the church to establish God's kingdom for him. It's never worked and it never will. So living in, in, as citizens of Jesus' kingdom now means that we've got to be comfortable living among others who don't acknowledge him as king. As citizens of his kingdom, but as almost those who are still tugged at by another competing kingdom. Jesus died at the hands of people who didn't acknowledge him as king, and that could happen to us. It's happening to people now in other parts of the world. More likely, living as citizens of his kingdom now in a, in a world in which it's not yet recognized, it's going to be a lot less heroic than that. No one's going to write a book about our sacrifices. More often than not, it means we have to face self-denial in less heroic ways. Because we live in between, in this already but not yet phase, because we're citizens of one kingdom, but we're, we're always pulled towards another kingdom, we have to deny every day to the demands of our flesh, to the demands of our selfish interests, to our desire to get ahead in this life, to amass more stuff, more money, more relationships that give us significance, the, the, uh, the desire to create a kingdom for ourselves in this place, the desire to get ahead is never something Jesus promises to fulfill. His disciples thought that's what they were getting when they signed up with Jesus originally. But what he calls them to is denying themselves all those things that might get them ahead in this world, to live as those who were headed for another one. Jesus' call is to turn aside, to not devote our lives to seeking material or sensual fulfillment, but to be okay as citizens of a kingdom that is already, but that is not yet. That's Mark chapters 1 through 8. Jesus is the divine Son of God who came here to fix what's broken. He came to do it by establishing a kingdom that he would root and nurture with his own blood. And he calls us now, even in this in-between time, to absolute submission to him. That's a liberating thing for you. It's good news for you. Jesus calls you to repent, to rest in him, and to be okay denying yourself the things that other kingdoms might offer you. In the days to come, weeks to come, we're going to look at the second half of Mark. It's going to get a lot more detailed about Jesus' death and why it's important and 
more specifically, what it looks like for us to follow a Savior who's going to die. For now, I hope that you can look back to Mark chapter 1 through 8 and find encouragement in the great lengths to which God has gone to establish a kingdom in which you can live in fulfillment. That's the promise of Mark chapters 1 through 8. Will you pray with me? Lord, we don't deserve the great, uh, the great illustration of your grace that's given to us in Jesus and the fact that he came here and lived and the fact that he died and rose again. But we claim it. And what we ask you for is a resolve in the face of so many things that often seem more vivid than the promises of the gospel that call us to submit to other rulers. We, we pray that you would give us a resolve in which... The things of the gospel seem so beautiful to us we couldn't imagine trading them in for any fleeting pleasure. Would you give us a vision of your kingdom that is so compelling to us, it leaves us joyful in our submission to you. That is something we know that can only come from your hand. It is a supernatural enlightening, a supernatural opening of eyes. We pray that just as Jesus effectively open the eyes of the blind man in Mark 8, that you would do the same for us. You would give us the ability to make the good confession with all of our lives that Jesus is the Christ. And we ask this in his powerful name. Amen.